This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.31, Goodbye Forever. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan. And I would like to remind you all that if you're thinking about getting the podcast a gift, this episode shows a very appropriate Gundam-themed gift is a suitcase full of gold. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob, but only until we finish this series. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 68 patrons. A big thank you to you all, including our newest patrons, Thomas N., Aaron R., and Chris F. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown, plus get access to our bonus content, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. The results are in, and unfortunately, we did not win any of the prizes for the My Roadcast contest. But thank you to everyone who voted, who shared, who liked all those posts. We really appreciate it. Your enthusiasm was really, really touching. Thank you so much. This means, however, that we are doing a huge Patreon push in an effort to get to $1,000 a month, which will enable us to afford some very important upgrades to our equipment. We're looking at new mic stands, additional mics, a new audio interface, among other things, (laughs) (laughs) all of which will help us make content faster and better and have more guests on the show. Tell your friends. (laughs) Tell your enemies. (laughs) Shout it from the rooftops. Last week, Makveh lured the Gundam into a duel in the ruined Texas colony, while his fleet of Xeon warships kept the white base and its other pilots occupied nearby. Walking into one trap after another, Amuro was finally able to turn the tables on the Xeon captain, thanks to his burgeoning new type abilities. While Lala and Shar watched, and in the midst of some kind of massive psychic experience, Amuro overwhelmed Makveh's defenses and cut him down. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam episode 38, Shar and Sela, or Saikai, Sha to Sera. And we've encountered the word Saikai before. Saikai, haha. That was back in episode 13 when Amro had his touching and very emotional reunion with his mother. Saikai means like reunion or we meet again. So the reunion of Shar and Sela. Saikai, the word Saikai. <laughs> and now the recap. We begin, moments after the last episode ended, the Gyan's explosion breaching the colony, Shars Gelgug shielding Lala from the blast, Amuro on the Texas colony having just defeated McVeigh, and the White Base and McVeigh's fleet at a standstill, hiding in the debris field and waiting for the other side to make the first move. The White Base crew worry about Amuro but can do nothing. Anyway, Mirai is sure that Amuro is fine, 
When Frau presses her, how can you know that? Mirai responds that she just knows, somehow. The air is rapidly escaping from Texas Colony, causing blinding dust storms. Shar sends Lala back to the Zanzibar. He will cover her escape. Amuro sees and feels Lala in the distance, but his focus on her allows Shar to sneak up on him. With a spark in his eyes, he dodges just in time. The rough terrain and sandstorm provide plenty of ways to hide, and Shar quickly disappears. Suspicious that the Gundam's pilot might be a new type, Shar fires from hiding, moves, fires again, but the Gundam dodges nearly every shot. Finally, Amuro finds Shar's hiding place and is able to sneak up on the Gelgoog. Amuro's abilities have improved beyond the Gundam's capacity. He begs it to respond faster. Shar makes a mistake and Amuro lands a solid hit on the Gelgoog, but Shar retreats and the Gundam's power is too low for pursuit. Commandant Joaquin's ship arrives in the zone around Texas, looking for the white base, but finds a Zeon warship instead. The first exchange draws McVeigh's squadron out of hiding, and the white base pounces. The G-Fighter's guns and the white base's missiles make quick work of the Zeon ships. While Joaquin's battleship waits outside, the white base enters Texas to retrieve Amaro. Unable to radio him, they send out buggies to search for the Gundam. However, as she searches, Sela finds not Amaro, but Shar. He seems angry that she is still in the military after he told her to quit during their last encounter. She confronts him about his own actions. She doesn't understand how he could join Zeon, even to get revenge on the Zabi family. Shar insists that he has other, less petty goals. We learn that their father, Zeon Dekun, created the Principality of Zeon in the belief that humanity was destined to be reborn as new types, but that he was assassinated by Degwin Zabi, and soon after his allies died one by one. Jimbaral, still loyal to their father, took Kasval and Artesia to be raised on Earth under assumed names for their own safety. Shar may have originally joined Zeon with dreams of vengeance, but he has grown up and his goals have changed. Even if the Federation wins the war, it won't bring lasting peace because now new types have appeared. Sela begs Shar to explain himself, to tell her what he's planning, but he only tells her that she must leave the White Base and return to Earth. I am no longer the brother you once knew. Do you know why I wear this mask? He asks her. It is because I have discarded my past. War doesn't suit you. Leave the white base. With that, Shar leaves her, disappearing into the storm as Sela calls his name. Bright has heard the whole conversation through Sela's open comm channel. Sela finally finds Amuro. The Gundam is retrieved. The white base takes off in pursuit of Shar's Zanzibar, even as Joaquin goes to block its escape. On their way, the white base encounters a small, signal-emitting object Suspecting it might be a bomb, they stop to inspect it, but it is only a metal case with a note on the outside addressing it to Sela. By the time the white base reach Joaquin's ship, it is too late. The ship is completely destroyed and Shar's Zanzibar is gone. The whole crew are in shock and Bright, weeping, salutes the ruined ship. Later, Bright confronts Sela about the case. While he would be within his rights to inspect it, he would rather she tell him what it is and who sent it. It is a case full of gold sent by Shar so that Sela can return to Earth and live out her life there. Alone in her quarters, Sela weeps, thinking of the brother who is now truly lost to her. So these are our first impressions for Mobile Suit Gundam episode 38, I believe. Saikai, Shato, Seira, 
or Shar and Sela in the English. I'm going to point out something that you pointed out when we were watching the episode originally, which is that this episode starts immediately where the previous one ended. Which is quite rare mm-hmm. for the show. Usually some amount of time elapses between episodes. These ones are immediately one following the next. Right. I mean, it even starts up again with Shar covering Lala with his Gelgoog. And to protect her from the blast caused by the Gyan's destruction. We catch up with Amrod standing there with his extinguished beam sabers looking around for the other mobile suit and for the source of the psychic projection which he has been experiencing. And this is an episode with a lot more of that psychic new type stuff, both in terms of what actually happens in the episode and also in terms of the dialogue and the fairly significant information dump that we get in the middle of it. The amount of information that comes out of this episode makes me wonder whether it was always intended to be this way or since we know (laughs) that they thought they were going to have more time to tell the story than they actually wound up being given, they were forced to speed things up and compress a lot of that information into fewer episodes than they had originally intended. Yeah, I think that's probably what happened. Uh, I know from the original draft of how these episodes were supposed to go, that there was going to be a lot of focus on new types and new type stuff. A lot of focus on the element that we'll talk about later, which is how Shar and Sela's family history intersects with the whole new type philosophy. One pretty discreet part of the discussion of Esperism in this episode, so I want to start with it because it doesn't really <laughs> bleed into the other conversations, Mirai. Yeah. Uh, Our suspicions confirmed. (laughs) Yes. We have talked about how she seems to have a bit of a sense about particularly people who are near death. She had it with Lieutenant Matilda. She had it with Slegger. And then here she has the reverse. The white base is not pinned down, but can't really move because they can't give away their position. And everybody's a little worried about Amaro because it means they can't go support him inside the colony. But Mirai is like, oh, he's fine. And when Fra asks her, well, how do you know? (laughs) She doesn't say, oh, because Amaro's so great, of course he's fine. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. she says something like, oh, it's just a feeling, I guess. I can't explain it or something like that. Right. Which in the real world, you'd make a disbelieving sort of face at her and uh, chalk it up to optimism, naivete. But in Gundam, in fiction, when someone says, I just have a feeling, I can't explain it, we know that something bigger is going on. Particularly when someone has already demonstrated somewhat oracular (laughs) (laughs) abilities. And they, they always say the rule of threes, right? If something crops up three times, it's significant. It's not accidental. Mm hmm. We get very little esperism from Lala in this episode. We just get very little Lala in this yeah, episode. She's, she's mostly you know, fleeing the colony and getting back on the Zanzibar. And a little bit as kind of a... She pops up a little bit because her relationship to Shar is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, not her episode. So I will say this about Lala in this episode. That scene at the end where Shar has just come back from the colony and Lala can tell something is off with Shar. And so she says, what happened in there? And Shar says very delphically, even my life has its share of tragedies. I'd rather not talk about it. He actually tells her it's better you don't ask about it. It's more of a command, right? It's more of him pulling rank and being like, you shouldn't ask me about these things. Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to I don't want to talk about it, which is about his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things we've pointed out over and over again throughout the show is how Gundam likes to use parallelism with its characters in order to make various points about them. And this scene very closely parallels when Fra asked Amuro what happened to him inside six. Because just like now, he had come back from doing something in this colony, and she could tell that something had happened. He was different somehow. And like Shar, Amuro didn't talk about it with Fra. Although the emotional character of that scene is very different. For Amuro, it's like, I want to be open with you about this, but I don't know how. And I hope that there will come a time in the future when I can be. But Shar is completely closed off. Even with Lala, who we've had the sense recently that he maybe has a closer connection to Lala than he has with any of his other soldiers. He's gone out of his way to protect her. But then in this episode, we find out why, because at the very beginning, right after he's saved her from the nuclear blast, she says, thank you. And he says, oh, don't mention it. You're an exceptional soldier. I, I would hate to lose you. I actually think there is more of a parallel. Obviously, this conversation does parallel the one you mentioned. But what Shar and Lala's interactions make me think of is Shar and Sela. Hmm. So much about how Lala reacts to Shar, looks at him, you know, that that sort of adoring admiration, mm -hmm. that desire to be as good as him, mm. that mm -hmm. closeness, the sort of jokey thing that she does with him sometimes. He even describes her as a relative when they're on side six. I think he says, think of her as a little sister. Right. And in this episode, we get a bit of narration when Shar has left Sela behind and Sela is like has fallen to her knees and is crying. We get this narration like her whole life, she's been chasing after him, chasing after her older brother, calling out mm -hmm. towards his back. This is sort of the the break in that relationship. Well, and that Sela is the sister of the old life the life that could have been. And Lala is the sister of his new persona, the sister of his new life. Do you think he is replacing Sela with Lala? Quite possibly. In a, but not in a... I think Shar is very complicated. I do think there is a... All of his relationships are mercenary, right? Yeah. I do think he likes Lala. I do think he's fond of her. But a big part of that is because she's useful. Mm -hmm. A big part of that is because she's a new type, which mm -hmm. we'll dig into a little more. Uh, so not out of this pure, like, he has developed brotherly feelings for her and isn't that nice? Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, watch his face during his scene with Sela. There's no emotional affect at all. Even at the end, when he turns around and he says, let me see your face one last time. And he's like, you're so beautiful. There's like, there's nothing going on. So Sharon Sela's conversation is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot to unpack there. Yeah. We find out that they were both raised by Jimbaral, at least when they were very young. It's unclear how they came to be on their own. How did Sela wind up on side seven, for instance? Because mm -hmm. Jimbaral raised them on Earth. Uh, Shah reveals that... While he initially joined the Xeon army <laughs> to get close to the Zabis, his current plan is not just revenge, although he doesn't explain much beyond that. He doesn't explain much, period. <laughs> uh, we know that their father believed that humans were destined to be, quote unquote, reborn as new types, which sounds like some pseudo-evolutionary... <laughs> 
like humans in space are becoming this newer, better type of human. Right. It's got spiritualism and evolution and yeah. Eugenics. <laughs> yeah. There's a mm, there's a really interesting vibe between these two blonde haired, blue eyed space future people. Talking about the future of the human race. Yeah. Well, and that um and that what Sela says is a slightly different version of what Shar has sort of been saying, which is that she learned from Jimbaral that new type is something that all people should aspire towards. Like it's a thing you can become. It's not innate to you. Right. They almost make new type sound like Jesus. <laughs> or becoming a new type like re- like reaching nirvana. Like, I was gonna say more like more like Buddhahood than like, than being Jesus. It's the thing to which we should all aspire. Uh, like, I honestly don't think Shar is wrong when he says that the Federation won't bring true peace, but he mm-hmm. ties that a bit to the discussion of new types, which to me says that we're going to see a comparison drawn between new types and super weapons, mm. possibly. Like the sense of when people saw the atomic bomb, did they think, oh, we are never going to have peace ever again? <laughs> like, I mean, a lot of people saw that and said, oh, we're never going to have war ever again. How can how can there be war when the weapons are so unimaginably destructive? Of course, I also wondered if another possible read on Shar's comments are that he fully expects there to be some kind of war between new types and non-new types. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that tons of fiction have talked about, like, if we had mutants, like, look at X-Men, you know, mm-hmm. do they become a new oppressed minority? Do they take power and become the oppressors? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a way to avoid either path? <laughs> uh, the bit that really kills me about this scene is that he doesn't really explain himself. He doesn't ask Sela a single thing about herself. And he basically just commands her, like, return to Earth, try to live a normal <laughs> life, uh, and expects her to do it, expects her to do what he tells her to. Mm-hmm. He's shocked. He's like, I told you to quit the army, and she didn't quit the army. <laughs> and then the the note on the gold is, I hope you will keep your promise or something. She didn't promise him anything. <laughs> and frankly, he didn't ask for a promise. He just ordered her <laughs> to go back to Earth. Uh, and I don't know if that's like an older brother, younger sister dynamic. He just expects her to do what he tells her to. Mm -hmm. Probably also the amount of time that he's been in command in his life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he he doesn't truly explain himself. And he wraps the whole thing by telling her, I have discarded my old life. I'm not Kazaval anymore. I, in a big way, that means he has discarded their relationship. Mm -hmm. But also I'm telling you to do this thing and you'd better do it. Also, I have a new sister now, and she does everything I tell her. And she's a new type. So destructive. (laughs) Way stronger than your new type. Extremely useful. I'm going to use her so much. I noticed a a funny visual thing that they did, which I think actually goes to emphasize a point Nina was making about their conversation, where throughout the whole thing, Char is not paying attention to anything that Sayla says. He has no (laughs) questions for her. He doesn't really respond to anything she says. He just has his sort of diatribe that he Mm -hmm. goes on, and then he gives her some orders. There's a bit where Char is like standing in the passenger seat, and Sayla is sitting in the driver's seat, and he's talking to her, and the camera starts out on his face and then it pans slowly down towards her 
it gets to her face and then it immediately, very quickly, pans right back up to Char's face, (laughs) which is the sort of camera work you'd see done in a comedy for humorous effect. And it is funny, but it also emphasizes that like Char is not paying attention to Selah. This is all about Char. We know Xeon has a whole institute devoted to studying new types. We know the Federation at least has some sense that new types exist and is running tests. We don't know who is farther along <laughs> in this research, <laughs> but I found it very interesting that in Char's fight with Amaro, he explicitly describes it as testing to see if this other pilot is a new type. Mm-hmm. And this is a... This is a fight between Shar and Amuro that really closely mirrors, but inverted, the fights at the beginning of the series, also between Shar and Amuro. And it's the addition of the new type factor that really helps to swing this around Mm -hmm. into that inverted position. Because in those first battles, you have the Gundam, which is the vastly stronger mobile suit, and Shar, who is the much better pilot. And so... They're almost matched, but Amuro and the Gundam has a slight advantage over Char. But now it's reversed. The Gundam is obsolete. The Gundam can't keep up with Amuro, and Char has the Gelgoog, which appears to be superior to the Gundam in practically every way. But now, because of his new type abilities, Amuro is the superior pilot. And it's only thanks to those, it's thanks to those last second dodges of shots he could not possibly have seen coming that Amuro is able to survive this encounter. It's probably one of his most skillful combats. Mm -hmm. And we even see Char make mistakes, or he perceives them as mistakes. You know, not getting out of the way in time, not anticipating the... pretty impressive flippy moves of the Gundam. <laughs> uh, and th- that whole scene where the Gundam is, is on the ground and it's just rolling away from Char as Char repeatedly stabs the ground where the Gundam almost was. Roll, Amuro, roll for your life. Just like Haro, roll to victory. <laughs> and then Amuro manages to cut the Gelgoog and its armor is so strong his beam saber can barely penetrate it. And despite Amuro's desire to go finish off the Gelgoog, he can't because the the batteries or whatever is powering the Gundam between the, the first fights with the Gelgoog <laughs> and the fight with the Gyan and the fighting in space before that, there's just no power left mm-hmm. to chase down an enemy. You mentioned something interesting right after we had watched the episode, which was about how the environment in the colony during the battle reflects the... The emotions of the story. And I actually don't think it's just in the colony. I think it's the environment of the whole episode. Mm. Uh, I wish I could remember where precisely I read this, but when I was researching Japanese directors for Eastern Westerns last week, one director was quoted as having said that the best environmental ways to create emotion in a scene are wind, rain, and snow. Mm. And that for very emotional scenes, he tried to always use at least one, if not two, of those things. (laughs) And the whole episode is windy, right? Yeah. It's not quite snow or rain, but there's enough wind that the screen is full of dirt and dust and rocks. We find out at the beginning, while we did see dust storms before, Shar mentions in a throwaway line that 
the explosion of the Gyan blasted a hole in the colony. Air is escaping. Mm -hmm. And we see people mostly keep their helmets on for that very reason. And that explains the extremity of the storm, if you wanted a scientific explanation. Uh, and then the reason that I say I think the environment of the whole episode also matters is we have you know enemies and allies all in this debris field with heavy Minovsky particle density. Nobody can see anything. Communication is bad. Visuals are bad. Nobody can tell who's who or what's what. When all of the buggies are out looking for Amaro, when one of them actually passes near enough to the Gundam, it's still so chaotic. It's so confused that they can't actually see the Gundam, the like 19 meter tall robot. Beyond the emotional turmoil and confusion of Shar and Sela's conversation, I think all of this environmental interference is also meant to be reflective of the confusion of the crew at large. Mm. You know, they're all seeing these hints of this ability that Amuro has, that Mirai has, and they don't know what's going on. And they're being kept in the dark. Mm -hmm. And they don't even know where to begin figuring it out. Uh, they this... can't tell which ships are ally and enemy. And there's a degree to which through the whole series, we felt like the Federation are not really the white base's allies. Even the people experiencing the Esperism themselves, like Amaro doesn't understand what he's seeing or feeling. Mm -hmm. He seems to be coping pretty well with it. He does not seem to be analyzing it too closely at this juncture, or if he is, we're not hearing about it, and it's not making him feel bad. <laughs> but they're just so in the dark. They're so mm -hmm. at sea. And there's a strong feeling of isolation in this episode. The white base can't communicate with Amaro. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they can't communicate with Watkin. And Char and Sela are in this. So I, I'm wondering about this significance. Char and Sela are just outside of a ranch house. And it's the only building we've seen <laughs> inside Texas Colony. And we get a brief flashback of them outside a beautiful little house oh, on Earth. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I is, think that's I think there's really something there. Parallel to that house, but everything is a desert. It's, everything yeah. is abandoned. Everything is dead. Because of the war. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is <laughs> <laughs> this is an episode where the environment yeah. is creating a sense of confusion and isolation that reflects what our main characters are going through. And that isolation for the white base is briefly broken when Watkin shows up and they have this moment of working together, coordinating even though they can't communicate in order to take down the Xeon fleet. And they actually have a, a nice moment together with Watkin communicating with Bright, even though there's so much static over the line. Mm -hmm. And then, but at the end of the episode, that isolation is reinforced because Watkin, who over the last couple of episodes has developed as maybe the one Federation officer who was willing to stick his neck out for the white base. Which is weird, but we'll get to we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> and so Watkin at the end of the episode is killed. His whole ship is destroyed, and the white base is left alone and isolated once again. I just realized <laughs> so there's a moment. When Bright says, oh, everyone is so exhausted. But the only person we see signs of that in are Fra, who is the comms officer. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So speaking of communication problems throughout the episode. Mm -hmm. Well, and poor Fra falling asleep at her station. 
And as a result of that, we have all of these messages that aren't coming through. Or aren't, aren't responded to right away. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have Bright just happening to be on the line for the entirety of Salo's conversation with Char. And it's it had to be Bright because in this episode and the last few episodes, Bright has taken on that big brother, almost parental role of watching out for everybody, watching out for everybody's emotional states, watching out for, you know, how the crew is functioning. You know, he's the one who notices that Mirai is troubled in the episode that shall not be named. <laughs> um, he's the one that notices that Fra is troubled. He now knows about Sela's issues. And he's so gentle with Fra. It's not, Fra, you're exhausted. Go get your replacement. It's like he he knows her well enough to know that if he says, oh, you know, I bet Hayato is kind of lonely. Maybe you should go check on him. Mm-hmm. That that's the gentle way, the kind way. Because he knows Fra is working hard. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to embarrass her, but she needs to go rest. Shout out to Chief Vamas, the member of the crew whose only purpose is to take over stations on the bridge when somebody is too tired to keep doing their job. And he doesn't immediately out Sela. Even to Mirai, who is his confidant as much as he has one, mm-hmm. he holds off. He well, keeps it close to the vest. And at the end, he doesn't demand to know what's going on. He says, I would like you to tell me. I was a little surprised initially, before I thought about it more deeply, by Bright's reaction to Joaquin's death. Yeah. Because if we trace their whole relationship, Joaquin was the one threatening them all with court-martial and possibly execution. <laughs> Back on Luna 2. Which was a shock for Bright at the time. But since that's basically the treatment he got from the Federation from then on, he must have gotten used to it. He looked back nostalgically on those early days. See, I, I'm not sure that that's what it is either. Uh, I think the next time we see them together... Well, so first, on Luna 2, isn't Joaquin the one who... They have to destroy part of their base or something so that the white base can get out? They have to or... destroy Watkins' own ship. And I believe he's the one who makes that call. He is. So when the chips were down, he did the right thing. He was willing to make a sacrifice. We then see him before the assault on Solomon, where he's giving the white base bad news. Like being in the vanguard is not <laughs> it's not a news anybody wants. Right. But he's leading it. He will also be there. He's willing to take the risk. And then we see him here. We're, they're still on that mopping up mission, so mm-hmm. to speak. And it seems like he has come out here looking for the white base, looking to support them. And poor Bright. I feel like all his mentors are dead. I think that's the reaction that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. I think that's the sadness. Part of it is the feeling that they could have saved him, but they were too late. But I do think part of it is the sense that everyone who was supposed to show him how to do this, everyone mm-hmm. who was supposed to lead him, everyone who was supposed to be looking out for him in the way he looks out for everyone on his own ship is gone. Yeah. I thought that scene was really elegantly done. The fight between the Zanzibar and the Magellan and the way it cuts right before the final blow lands. And then we don't see the outcome until the white base emerges from the colony and all that's left are the scraps. Well, and we don't even see that until everyone has reacted to the site. Mm-hmm. We see everyone's faces first. Mm-hmm. We see Mirai put a hand up over her eyes. We see Amaro and Fra looking shocked as they stand on the bridge gazing out. 
We see Bright's shock. We see. I mean, Kai. Kai's anger, right? Kai is the one who yells, like, that Shar. And it's not until we've seen that and we know that it must be bad that the camera shows us the remains of Joaquin's ship. Yeah. Do you remember way back to episode four? Joaquin got, I think, the last line of the episode, and it was the line of Captain Paolo's funeral, which is. It seems like this war keeps taking from us those who have the most to teach us. This week, we researched the Gelgoog's decidedly low-tech sword, the word Kanchol, and gold in World War II. The Gelgoog deploys a new weapon in this episode. Its close-range weapon has a long haft and a pretty long curved blade. In fact, the two, the haft and the blade, seem to be about equally long. It's not quite a sword, and it's not quite a polearm. In official Gundam terminology, this is going to be called a naginata, but it super isn't. In history, the naginata is a Japanese pole weapon with a heavy curved blade of between one and two feet in length. It has a shaft around four times the length of the blade. The blade is quite a bit like the one used on Japanese swords of the same period and was forged according to the same method, but unlike the sword, most naginata get a little thicker towards the end of the blade. Like the Japanese sword, the naginata developed a cultural significance that outlived its battlefield relevance. Changes in tactics, social structures, and the introduction of gunpowder made the naginata basically irrelevant during the 16th century, but by then it had already become established as the iconic and traditional weapon of two very important groups in Japanese medieval society, warrior monks and warrior women. Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> women of the warrior class were expected to stay home when their husbands and sons and brothers and whatnot went off to war, but not all of them did. And those who did stay home were expected to defend the home in the event of an attack by bandits or enemies. And so women of the samurai class were trained to use the naginata. Because of its length, the polearm equalizes a lot of the strength disadvantages that a woman has. Effective use of a naginata allows a trained woman to compete pretty effectively, even with a physically much stronger opponent. The naginata is also responsible for the introduction of greaves, which is to say shin guards in Japanese armor, because one of the things you can do with it is flip it upside down and chop at the person's feet. The naginata is a fascinating weapon with a fascinating history, and we're going to delve a lot deeper into it in the future, so look forward to that. First, though, I want to focus on a different and less well-known weapon also from Japan's medieval past. This is the weapon that the one wielded by Shars Gelgug in this episode actually resembles. It is the Nagamaki. The name means long wrapping, because the business end is a sword blade, an especially long one, of greater than two shaku, which is roughly two feet, while the hilt or haft is roughly equal in length to the blade. That makes it about three times longer than the hilt on a regular sword. So the nagamaki is somewhere in between a sword and a polearm. Like the naginata, it was favored by warrior monks and remained associated with them despite its decline as a battlefield weapon. In some martial arts traditions, the story goes that the warrior monks were taught how to use both the naginata and the nagamaki by Tengu, a kind of winged warrior demon common in Japanese folklore. I should mention here, however, that the length of the nagamaki blade and haft varied quite a bit, especially over time, 
leading to a fair amount of debate today about whether the Nagamaki evolved as a specialized kind of sword or as a weird sort of polearm. Uh, partly this is because very, very few Nagamaki have survived into the present day. They were pretty rare in the first place because they're especially difficult to forge. You basically have to make a sword that is twice as large as a sword. And then they became far more rare after the unification of the country and the end of large-scale warfare because many of the existing Nagamaki at the time were cut down into regular-length swords called Nagamaki Naoshi. <laughs> a, a repaired Nagamaki? <laughs> 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 they also did this to some Naginata, too. This is also partly because the Nagamaki occupied a space between those two other types of weapons, and they weren't standardized, so there were always going to be some examples falling closer to one or the other end of the range. We don't have a lot of great evidence for the period when the Nagamaki and Naginata were both first introduced. Based on some sort of unclear language used to describe them, including the verbs for drawing one and the ways that they're described, it's possible that they shared a common origin and that the nagamaki was a sort of intermediary step between a sword with a long handle and a sword on the end of a pole. So while I would like to be able to look at these weapons and categorize them very precisely and say, this is a naginata, this is a nagamaki, this is a katana, or a tachi, or whatever, that's not so easy to do. And maybe it's not appropriate to do at all. The fact is, these weapons kind of blend into each other, especially at the extremes. And it's not that weird to encounter something like this, which looks to my eye like a nagamaki, but is called a naginata. There was also a subset of sword design during the Japanese medieval period where you just made swords with blades as long as you possibly could. <laughs> it was a prestige thing. It was a way of showing off the swordsmith's skills. Oftentimes these were given as donations to temples because they were seen as appropriate for the gods. They were also used on the battlefield sometimes, although the use was complicated by the fact that they were too long to be drawn. And so you had to have a retainer help you to unsheath them before you could go into battle. I think it's very possible that the Nagamaki may have simply been a way of using one of those, but making it more wieldable by making the handle longer. Yeah, I'm just picturing this sword hanging from somebody's side, like dragging <laughs> in the earth behind them. <laughs> uh, no, these were actually worn. These Over were actually the worn on the back, mm. uh, and one of the names for them translates to backworn sword. Ha. Huh. So in this episode, we see McVeigh's second under a different commander. He does not uh, take control of McVeigh's ship himself. Uh, we see him addressed as Chewy. Chewy is lieutenant junior grade, higher than an ensign, lower than a lieutenant. If Uragang had managed to take down the white base, he would have gotten a two rank promotion to lieutenant commander, Shosa. <laughs> it's useful, I think, to track exactly how the command on this ship works over the course of the three episodes where it's relevant. So starting in the last of the Solomon arc, McVeigh is traveling with his relief fleet to try to save Solomon. They don't manage to make it in time. He says, I'll take uh, Chivet, which is a, like a battle cruiser and a couple of Musai, and I'll do something in the wreckage. I'll look for survivors or something like that. Then in the next episode, we see him on the Chivet with his two Musai cruisers. He's giving the commands. He has clearly taken command of this little squadron. And after McVeigh leaves to go launch his ambush in the Gyan, 
In that episode, Uragang is giving the orders. Now, in this episode, McVeigh is dead, Uragang is still on that ship, but somebody else we've never seen before is giving the orders. So that tells us a couple interesting things about the Xeon command structure. It suggests that Uragang was in charge because he was McVeigh's delegate. McVeigh was the highest ranked person in this squadron. He had taken command and he had delegated Uragang to command in his stead, but that when McVeigh died, command defaulted to whoever the highest ranked officer in that squadron was, and that's this new guy. Uh, and he addresses the commander of the ship he is on as Kanchol. Uh, now, as with so many Japanese words, there are a lot of <laughs> words that sound like kancho, not just like that, that are kancho, but the particular <laughs> word that is being used here means captain of a warship. Kancho is a really convenient word <laughs> because the problem we have in English is that captain means like a bunch of different things. Captain is a rank in the army. It's an entirely different rank in the Navy. It's also a title of respect used for whoever the highest ranking person on a ship happens to be, even if they are not the rank of captain. So it's site specific. Yeah. Japan does not have that problem. In Japanese, there are different words for each of those things. In the Imperial Japanese Navy, a captain was a daisa. In the Imperial Japanese Army, a captain is a taii. And the officer commanding a ship is Kancho. So we don't actually know what rank this new guy is. He's somewhere lower than Daisa because he didn't outrank McVeigh, but he is the highest ranked officer on the ship, and so he gets to be Kancho. And we know he's higher ranked than a Chewie. Yes. Oh, one quick reminder. If you are paying a lot of attention to the Japanese words that are being used for the various titles, then you will have recognized that I just referred to McVeigh as a Daisa, when he is in fact a Taisa. Taisa is the army equivalent of Daisa, which is the navy rank. For some reason, in the English translations of Gundam, they use English navy ranks, even though the Japanese uses army ranks. I don't know why. I think there's a, an argument to be made that when we think about space ships, <laughs> we think about effectively a space navy. Mm -hmm. And so we want to use Navy ranks. <laughs> I, I think that makes sense. It is a departure from the Japanese of the original. Now I'm really curious what they're going to do in future series, because I do think there is a tendency to think of space battles as being like naval battles. They're even depicted like naval battles in this show. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little, it's kind of an odd choice to use army ranks instead. It is. <laughs> I couldn't tell you why. I don't expect you to. We're just talking about interesting, confusing <laughs> aspects was, of the show. I thought that was my role here. I thought my role was to answer all the Gundam questions. No. Off the top of my head. Nope. With perfect accuracy. Nope, nope, nope. The sudden appearance of a small trunk full of glowy gold bars <laughs> brings us back to the role that gold played in World War II. We touched on Nazi gold when we talked about neutral countries, as many of these countries traded with Germany during the war and so were recipients of looted gold. German currency was effectively worthless due to rampant inflation during the Depression. Gold prices were much more stable, not just compared to German currency, but compared to most world currencies, especially during wartime. 
Beginning with the invasion of Austria, Germany would seize the holdings of national banks, private businesses, and individuals of invaded countries. Some countries were so concerned about their reserves falling into German hands that they moved all of those reserves to places considered more safe. In Operation Fish, the UK moved 1,500 metric tons of gold across the Atlantic to Canada. (laughs) Imagine if that had been sunk. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine for a moment. I suspect that there would have been a rapid improvement in the quality of (laughs) diving equipment. equipment. (laughs) Approximately $550 million worth of gold was expropriated by Germany from foreign governments. That does not include private businesses or individuals. You would think that a benefit of gold would be its untraceability. Uh, Germany did make efforts to hide the origin of its gold in that it would take uh, jewelry and gold bullion and other gold and melt it into rings or bars so that you couldn't trace it back to the original owner. However, then they would stamp it with swastikas and like Reichsbank logos and things like that. So, Ugh. And everybody knew that all the German gold was looted because their own gold reserves prior to the war were not substantial. <laughs> Nazis just got to do Nazi stuff. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, this is totally unrelated, but I discovered that somebody found at the bottom of a lake like a huge golden cauldron that some Nazis had commissioned at some point that... Because of the insignia on it, people initially thought maybe it was very old, but then they found out that like actually some Nazis had commissioned this ridiculous gold cauldron for some reason. And then it was found at the bottom of a lake. <laughs> Were the markings like old Norse stuff? Yeah. God, I would like to file a complaint against the Nazis for, for ruining, ruining Norse, Norse mythology. <laughs> uh, well, and then... The last thing that I found about this cauldron was there were a bunch of legal battles over it. Uh, Some bank or art warehouse or something was trying to sell it and had convinced someone to a particular price because they said, oh, no, we're sure it's actually much older than they say. And then the person sued them because, Mm -hmm. no, it's not. Right. So anyway, it's tied up in courts now. (laughs) Creepy Nazi cauldron. I feel like, yeah, I feel like tied up in courts is the natural fate of a giant creepy golden nazi cauldron that is a series of adjectives i did not think i would be saying on this podcast (laughs) anyway neutral countries did not want to receive gold that was obviously from germany because this was part of maintaining their neutrality allied countries would take issue with them receiving looted gold in payment So gold from Germany was often exchanged in Switzerland for gold of another origin. So they effectively laundered the gold. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Germany's dependence on gold for international trade created complications for them and opportunities for others. Canfranc is a now tiny Spanish town in the Pyrenees, near the French border. It's main street bisected by a massive train station. The international station, opened by Spanish King Alfonso XIII and French President Gaston Dumergue in 1928, is now in total disrepair. The bridge necessary to reach it from France was destroyed at some point. Um, There's talk of restoration. It's a very architecturally significant building. They used it to film Dr. Zhivago. Uh, They might try to reinstate international train traffic. It also had incredible historical significance during World War II. Spain was exporting tungsten, wolfram, iron, and other materials to Germany in exchange for gold and gemstones. And this was all passing through Confranc. 
The same trains carrying gold to Spain and on to Portugal also carried refugees, spies, allied paratroopers, smugglers, <laughs> and French resistance documents and intelligence in and out of the Iberian Peninsula. Most of these trains had secret compartments in the underside where all of this was being hidden. If you remember from some episodes back, when we talked about the British commando raid on the French port of Saint-Nazaire, the handful of commandos who managed to escape overland did so by getting into neutral Spain and then catching boats back to England. There's a very good chance that they made it through Confranc. There was a local spy network in the town passing information and helping refugees and allies escape occupied Europe. Julian Eresuelo, a townsperson who was a child there at the time, said that for the townsfolk, they were more interested in the imported food than in gold. <laughs> Quote, my father used to say that the people of Canfranc were capable of removing shoes from a horse as it galloped. <laughs> uh, Spain had just been through a brutal civil war. Many of the Republicans who had lost the war had actually fled to France and aided in the resistance movement there. Many of them became allied soldiers. Uh, and many who were still in Spain were aiding those foreign resistance movements. Albert Lelay, the French customs official in Canfranc, uh, it was an international station, so it had both French and Spanish uh, involvement, helped hundreds of Jewish refugees get to safety in Spain while pretending to be a collaborator with Vichy France. The Spanish government's attitude was highly variable toward refugees, sometimes permissive, sometimes not. Franco's attitude is described as opportunistic <laughs> in one of my sources. Uh, sometimes refugees were captured and jailed in Spain. From the start of the war until 1942, passports were basically stamped without question and refugees found themselves in the relative safety of Spain or moving on to Portugal. In 1942, a group of Gestapo settled in the town and began to detain and deport any refugee they caught trying to cross the border. Initially, local Spanish officials acted against the Gestapo, helping anyone they found get across. But later, due to increased pressure from Germany, anyone caught fleeing across the border was jailed and either deported to their country of origin or to allied North Africa. Uh, those, those seem like extremely different deportation outcomes. Yes, they do. Well, it's so weird for a fascist to be ideologically <laughs> inconsistent. That's so not a thing that they do. A fascist who is also trying very hard to stay neutral uh, and so probably jailed or freed people based on who they needed to appease at any given moment. Uh, among those jailed were Marcel Proust. <laughs> who was held at the prison at Jaca, trying to get to Africa to join the Allies. Among those who escaped through Canfranc were artists Max Ernst and Marc Chagall, Sigmund Freud, and singer and dancer Josephine Baker, whose husband was a French Jew, and uh, she escaped with some fanfare. As a way of assuring that she wasn't hassled, she made sure all the international press knew that she was going to be there <laughs> so that if they hassled her at all, it would be in every single international paper. Comfranc mm. was an essential link in the chain of information stretching from the French resistance to Britain and the United States. Lelay not only passed information and secrets each way, but also spies themselves and even materials and machinery, including... The very first transmitter that enabled the French underground in Paris to communicate directly with London. After about a year of the Gestapo breathing down his neck, the spy ring was mostly dismantled and Lillet and his wife had to flee. 
His story actually only recently came to light. Someone found papers in the now abandoned station that mentioned the illegal gold trade. And as journalists began to investigate, Lille's name kept coming up. And they also found some of his old journals. A lot of refugees made donations to him, uh, which he used to help local schools and aid societies for refugees. Uh, a grandson of his was willing to talk to them. Previously, Lillet had insisted that his family not talk about what he had done during the war. He didn't want to talk about it, and he didn't want them talking about it. So even though he played this really integral role, <laughs> uh, it wasn't until recently that we started hearing more about him. There's a documentary about him called The King of Confranc. On almost the opposite end of the Iberian Peninsula, Lisbon was similar to Confranc in that it was full of Nazis, allies, refugees, neutrals, and so on. But Lisbon is a major city, and with Germany and Switzerland formed what some texts call the Golden Triangle. Gold captured by Germany was then laundered through Swiss banks and used to pay Portugal for tungsten. Portugal was not willing to provide goods on credit. <laughs> uh, and currency, in addition to being volatile due to the war, was often full of forgeries. If you think about it, wartime governments <laughs> have fewer uh, people and funds to spare for monitoring <laughs> the health of their currency. <laughs> uh, There's also a, a form of espionage where you print up massive amounts of counterfeit enemy currency. And watch where the money goes. And you can give it to your own spies to use when they're operating in the foreign country. And you can also make lots of easily detectable counterfeit currency just to decrease the reliability of the enemy's economy. However, as we mentioned before, uh, any gold that was clearly from Germany and hence looted would have and did <laughs> get uh, the Portuguese government in trouble with the allies. Portugal was also the embarkation point for anyone trying to get to the Americas or Palestine, which was a lot of people in Europe at that time. Uh, many soldiers from France, Poland, the Netherlands, and Belgium tried to get to Spain or Portugal so that from there they could get to Northern Africa and join the Allied forces there. And Estoril on the Portuguese Riviera was full of aristocrats in exile including the Duke of Windsor, formerly King Edward VIII, and the Spanish royal family. Hmm. Estimates of the number of refugees who entered Portugal vary wildly, from 100,000 to 1 million people. But even the low end represents a significant number. Portugal's population was only 6 million people at the time. Portugal's dictator, Salazar, was sympathetic to the Jewish people's plight and a close friend with local Jewish leaders. He authorized moving the main office of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society from Paris to Lisbon after France was invaded. Portuguese consulates all over Europe issued visas for refugees, often in direct contravention of local instructions, and in some cases directly supported by Salazar. Uh, Prior to the U.S. entering the war, the public position in the United States was highly sympathetic of Portugal's neutrality and supportive of Portugal's dictator. Uh, I will link to a fascinating article from Life magazine 1940. It's really <laughs> uh, interesting <laughs> to, to read. I mean, Life magazine was not exactly like edgy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the way they talk about Salazar's dictatorship is really eye-opening. Due to its neutrality and status as a waypoint for people from all over Europe, Lisbon was full of spies. 
the diplomatic corps of many countries were far larger than would seem necessary. <laughs> and a great many propaganda writers were also based there, including Ian Fleming, hmm. author of the James Bond novels. Uh, numerous traitors, agents, and double agents were recruited there. Uh, the degree to which agents of many opposing factions were essentially cheek to jowl <laughs> with each other <laughs> in Lisbon is pretty incredible to think about. Nazi and allied spies, double agents, journalists, code breakers, and political operatives, all at the same clubs and cafes, hanging out at the same beaches, hanging out together at the casino. <laughs> it's really easy to forget what the like point of the plot in Casablanca is, <laughs> but the whole point of the plot in Casablanca is that main character Rick's ex-Flame and her husband, a Czech resistance fighter, are trying to get papers so that they can get to Portugal, so that they can get out of Europe. And they're in Casablanca. It's in Vichy-controlled North Africa, and they're trying to get the papers so that they can get to Portugal. Well, and from Portugal, you could get on a ship, or if you were wealthy enough, a plane. There was a Pan Am that left from Portugal to New York direct. The local secret police were permissive of espionage as long as it did not interfere with or involve the local government or local people. Of course, <laughs> there were some infiltrations, and Salazar at one point demanded the removal of a British diplomat who appeared to be working with anti-Salazar factions. <laughs> uh, one book describes a common method used by German agents to buy support from Portuguese government officials. <laughs> I found this very amusing. A German operative would say that they were being recalled on short notice and needed to sell their Mercedes with four good tires, which was very important during the <laughs> war because rubber was rationed. You couldn't get new tires. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to let it go at a very reasonable price because they're in a rush. Does the official know someone maybe who's in the market for a Mercedes? The official would buy the Mercedes at a marked down price. A couple of days later, another German operative would approach the same official looking to buy a Mercedes with four good tires and willing to pay a considerable premium. <laughs> Does the official know anyone who's selling such an automobile? And the official pockets the difference. No bribe has been offered or accepted. These are clearly two different transactions. <laughs> there were also lots of regular bribes <laughs> paid as well. Uh, <laughs> Portugal was desperately poor at the time and salaries were low even for senior officials. So there was a lot of standard bribery, too. In the grand tradition of our research pieces, some of this might not feel precisely on topic, <laughs> but it is very interesting. And where do you think Shar got that gold? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think the necessity of moving all of this gold bullion and other goods back and forth along these supply lines is what facilitated the movement of all of these people and all of this information. If the gold hadn't been moving through these neutral countries, I don't think you'd have had the same prevalence of like spycraft <laughs> and, <laughs> and movement of refugees and all of that other complementary movement <laughs> through the Iberian Peninsula. Well, we haven't, we haven't encountered money very much in Gundam. This is only the second time in the show that it's been mentioned. The first time is when they were in Dublin and Amaro gave Kai his toolbox to sell. To pawn, yeah. Yeah. But I would guess that Xeon probably issues their own currency and it's probably not accepted on Earth. So for a commando like Shar, who operates on Earth a lot, it's probably necessary to have a certain amount of gold on hand in case he needs to buy things or bribe people. Looking to sell a mobile suit. Two good legs. <laughs> Very reasonable price. 
We say goodbye to Commandant Watkin with a passage from The War Diary of the Poet Alan Ross, recording some of his experiences during his time aboard an escort destroyer protecting an Arctic convoy of supplies to England. The destroyer's attack, drawing the enemy fire. Four swords of flame flick into the grayness like a fencer's blow. World is a small, narrowing circle, squeezed smaller and smaller. Time has been interrupted, the clock smashed. Red flecked, world has reduced the gunsight's orb, its still center, a focal gray in a tilted world of sea and sky. It is too late to put the pieces together. We are going in. Across our bows, suddenly, a welter of light, an expanding cone of sluiced sounds. Again, and a shiver of steel, a moment of time displaced, the revolving bands interrupted. You didn't put the pieces together quickly enough. A storm of unleashed sound, shaken in a bowl of electric enclosure, a rainbow of light rocketing through the wrecked space, waves of explosion dancing in narrowing circles within the eyes, and like a long snake unwinding, steam hissing out in a stream over everything. Next time on episode 1.32, The Man from Jupiter. Girin's extremely weird face. A new type of mustache. Creepy space music. Increasingly psychedelic animation. She's melting, melting. The right amount of strength. Gundam versus the space octopus. The genuine article. Warped ideals and peace for all humanity. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Calling that mobile suit Elmeth was a great translation decision and we should stick with it forever. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The music for the memorial was Dancing on the Edge by Kai Engel. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. When I told Nina what the Elmeth is actually named, she got so angry. 
I would say I was indignant. I think indignant is a flavor of anger, but I appreciate <laughs> your precision. <laughs> so for, uh, for our listeners, Tom, especially those who are not watching the show along with us, would you say the Elmeth's name in <laughs> Japanese, please? I will, but I want to leave what it actually is for another episode. Okay. Let's just tease them. Because the name in Japanese is Erumesu. Round two. More correct now. <laughs> just be better. I, I am being better. Be less bad. Listen. <laughs> you. You read that very well. Thank you. I practiced a bunch. Poetry is demanding. Yeah. Well, and when it's written in prose like that, there's a bit more freedom to, like, feel it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Less, it, it commands less. Now I'll be able to see and hear everything they taste and smell. <laughs> I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I need a second because I didn't think of one of these. I didn't either. <laughs> we both forgot. Uh, all right. Quick, quick, quick. Speaking of our podcast that we have, which we do here at Mobile Suit Breakdown, 30 minutes of slurping. I thought it was sluiced. I think it's sluiced. Shall we check? Yes. And I would like to remind all of our most loyal viewers that a briefcase full of gold is a very appropriate Gundam themed gift. Viewers. <laughs> I'm Tom. <laughs> I listen to podcasts with my eyes. I take small issue with always use two hands, because if you're doing the two sword fighting, okay, then true. you have one hand <laughs> that's on true. each sword. Nitha is a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> you. 